The Story of Siavash, Part 1, in Shahnameh, by Fedosi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Siavash, Part 1 Early one morning, as the cock crew, Tus arose and accompanied by Give and Gudars and a company of horsemen, proceeded on a hunting excursion, not far from the banks of the Jehun, where, after ranging about the forest for some time, they happened to fall in with a damsel of extreme beauty, with smiling lips, blossoming cheeks, and fascinating mien. They said to her, "'Never was seen so sweet a flower, in garden, vale, or fairy bower,' The moon is on thy lovely face, thy cypress form is full of grace. But why, with charms so soft and meek, dost thou the lonely forest seek? She replied that her father was a violent man, and that she had left her home to escape his anger. She had crossed the river Jehun, and had travelled several leagues on foot, in consequence of her horse being too much fatigued to bear her further. She had at the time been three days in the forest. On being questioned respecting her parentage, she said her father's name was Shivar, of the race of Feridun. Many sovereigns had been suitors for her hand, but she did not approve of one of them. At last he wanted to marry her to Pashang, the ruler of Turan, but she refused him on account of his ugliness and bad temper. This, she said, was the cause of her father's violence, and of her flight from home. But when his angry mood is over, he'll love his daughter as before, and send his horsemen far and near to take me to my mother dear. Therefore I would not further stray, but here without a murmur stay. The hearts of both Tus and Give were equally inflamed with love for the damsel, and each was equally determined to support his own pretensions, in consequence of which a quarrel arose between them. At length it was agreed to refer the matter to the king, and to abide by his decision. When, however, the king beheld the lovely object of contention, he was not disposed to give her to either claimant, but without hesitation took her to himself, after having first ascertained that she was of distinguished family and connection. In due time a son was born to him, who was, according to the calculations of the astrologers, of wonderful promise, and named Siavash. The prophecies about his surprising virtues, and his future renown, made Kavus anxious that justice should be done to his opening talents, and he was highly gratified when Rostam agreed to take him to Zabalistan, and there instruct him in all the accomplishments which were suitable to his illustrious rank. He was accordingly taught horsemanship and archery, how to conduct himself at banquets, how to hunt with the falcon and the leopard, and made familiar with the manners and duty of kings, and the hardy chivalry of the age. His progress in the attainment of every species of knowledge and science was surprising, 
and in hunting he never stooped to the pursuit of animals inferior to the lion or the tiger. It was not long before the youth felt anxious to pay a visit to his father, and Rostam, willingly complying with his wishes, accompanied his accomplished pupil to the royal court, where they were both received with becoming distinction. Siavesh, having fulfilled Kavus's expectations in the highest degree, and the king's gratitude to the champion being in proportion to the eminent merit of his services on the interesting occasion. After this, however, preceptors were continued to enlighten his mind seven years longer, and then he was emancipated from further application and study. One day, Sudabe, the daughter of the Shah of Hamavaran, happening to see Siavash sitting with his father, the beauty of his person made an instantaneous impression on her heart. The fire of love consumed her breast, the thoughts of him denied her rest, for him alone she pined in grief, from him alone she sought relief, and called him to her secret bower, to while away the passing hour. But Siavash refused the call, he would not shame his father's hall. The enamoured Sudabe, however, was not to be disappointed without further effort, and on a subsequent day she boldly went to the king, and praising the character and attainments of his son, proposed that he should be united in marriage to one of the damsels of royal lineage under her care. For the pretended purpose, therefore, of making his choice, she requested he might be sent to the harem, to see all the ladies and fix on one the most suited to his taste. The king approved of the proposal, and intimated it to Siavash, but Siavash was modest, timid, and bashful, and mentally suspected in this overture some artifice of Sudabe. He accordingly hesitated, but the king overcame his scruples, and the youth at length repaired to the Shabastan, as the retired apartments of the women are called, with fear and trembling. When he entered within the precincts of the sacred place, he was surprised by the richness and magnificence of everything that struck his sight. He was delighted with the company of beautiful women, and he observed Surabe sitting on a splendid throne in an interior chamber, like heaven in beauty and loveliness, with a coronet on her head, and her hair floating around her in musky ringlets. Seeing him, she descended gracefully, and clasping him in her arms, kissed his eyes and face with such ardour and enthusiasm, that he thought proper to retire from her endearments and mix among the other damsels, who placed him on a golden chair, and kept him in agreeable conversation for some time. After this pleasing interview, he returned to the king, and gave him a very favourable account of his reception, and the heavenly splendour of the retirement, worthy of Jamshid, Feridun, or Hushang, which gladdened his father's heart. Kavus repeated to him his wish that he would at once choose one of the lights of the harem for his wife as the astrologers had prophesied on his marriage the birth of a prince. 
but Siavash endeavoured to excuse himself from going again to Sudabe's apartments. The king smiled at his weakness, and assured him that Sudabe was alone anxious for his happiness, upon which the youth found himself again in her power. She was surrounded by the damsels as before, but whilst his eyes were cast down, they shortly disappeared, leaving him and the enamoured Sudabe together. She soon approached him, and lovingly said, Oh, why the secret keep from one, whose heart is fixed on thee alone? Say who thou art, from whom descended, some peri with a mortal blended. For every maid who sees that face, that cypress form replete with grace, becomes a victim to the wiles, which nestle in those dimpled smiles, becomes thy own adoring slave, whom nothing but thy love can save. To this Siavash made no reply. The history of the adventure of Kavus at Hamavaran, and what the king and his warriors endured in consequence of the treachery of the father of Sudabe, flashed upon his mind. He therefore was full of apprehension, and breathed not a word in answer to her fondness. Sudabe, observing his silence and reluctance, threw away from herself the veil of modesty, and said, Oh, be my own, for I am thine, and clasp me in thy arms. And then she sprang to the astonished boy, and eagerly kissed his deep crimsoned cheek, which filled his soul with strange confusion. When the king is dead, oh, take me to thyself. See how I stand, body and soul, devoted unto thee. In his heart, he said, This can never be. This is a demon's work. Shall I be treacherous? What? To my own dear father? Never, never, I will not thus be tempted by the devil. Yet must I not be called to this wild woman, for fear of further folly. Siavash then expressed his readiness to be united in marriage to her daughter, and to no other. And when this intelligence was conveyed to Kavus by Surabe herself, his majesty was extremely pleased, and munificently opened his treasury on the happy occasion. But Sudaba still kept in view her own design, and still laboring for its success sedulously led her own incantations to prevent disappointment, at any rate to punish the uncomplying youth if she failed. On another day she sent for him, and exclaimed, I cannot now dissemble. Since I saw the ice seem to be as dead, my heart's all withered. Seven years have passed in unrequited love, seven long, long years. Oh, be not still obdurate, but with the generous impulse of affection, oh, bless my anxious spirit, or, refusing, thy life will be in peril. Thou shalt die. Never, replied the youth. Oh, never, never. Oh, ask me not, for this can never be. Siavash then rose to depart precipitately, but Sudabe, observing him, endeavoured to cling round him and arrest his flight. The endeavour, however, was fruitless, 
and finding at late her situation desperate, she determined to turn the adventure into her own favour by accusing Siavash of an atrocious outrage on her own person and virtue. She accordingly tore her dress, screamed aloud, and rushed out of her apartment to inform Carvus of the indignity she had suffered. Among her women the most clamorous lamentations arose, and echoed on every side. The king, on hearing that Siavash had preferred Surabe to her daughter, and that he had mediated so abominable an offence, thought that death alone could expiate his crime. He therefore summoned him to his presence, but satisfied that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to ascertain the truth of the case from either party concerned, he had recourse to a test which he thought would be infallible and conclusive. He first smelt the hands of Siavash, and then his garments, which had the scent of rose water, and then he took the garments of Sudabe, which, on the contrary, had a strong flavour of wine and musk. Upon this discovery, the king resolved on the death of Sudabe, being convinced of the falsehood of the accusation she had made against his son. But when his indignation subsided, he was induced on various accounts to forego that resolution. Yet he said to her, I am sure that Siavash is innocent, but let that remain concealed. Sudaba, however, persisted in asserting his guilt, and continually urged him to punish the reputed offender, but without being attended to. At length he resolved to ascertain the innocence of Siavash by the ordeal of fire, and the fearless youth prepared to undergo the terrible trial to which he was sentenced, telling his father to be under no alarm. The truth, and its reward I claim, will bear me safe through fiercest flame. A tremendous fire was accordingly lighted on the adjacent plain, which blazed to an immense distance. The youth was attired in his golden helmet and a white robe, and mounted on a black horse. He put up a prayer to the Almighty for protection, and then rushed amidst the conflagration, as collectedly as if the act had been entirely free from peril. When Sudaba heard the confused exclamations that were uttered at that moment, she hurried upon the terrace of the palace, and witnessed the appalling sight, and the fondness of her heart wished even that she could share his fate, the fate of him of whom she was so deeply enamoured. The king himself fell from his throne in horror, on seeing him surrounded and enveloped in the flames, from which there seemed no chance of extrication. But the gallant youth soon rose up, like the moon from the bursting element, and went through the ordeal unharmed and untouched by the fire. Cavus, on coming to his senses, rejoiced exceedingly on the happy occasion, and his severest anger was directed against Sudabe, whom he now determined to put to death, not only for her own guilt, but for exposing his son to such imminent danger. The noble youth, however, interceded for her, Sudabe notwithstanding, still continued to practice her charms and incantations in secret, to the end that Siavash might be put out of the way, and in this pursuit she was indeed indefatigable. Suddenly, 
intelligence was received that Afrasiab had assembled another army for the purpose of making an eruption into Iran, and Kavus, seeing that Aterta could neither be bound by promise nor oath, resolved that he would, on this occasion, take the field himself, penetrate as far as Balkh, and, seizing the country, make an example of the inhabitants. But Siabash, perceiving in this prospect of affairs an opportunity of becoming free from the machinations and witchery of Sudabe, earnestly requested to be employed, adding that, with the advice and bravery of Rostam, he would be sure of success. The king referred the matter to Rostam, who candidly declared that there was no necessity whatever for his majesty proceeding personally to the war, and upon this assurance he threw open his treasury, and supplied all the resources of the empire to equip the troops appointed to accompany them. After one month, the army marched toward Balkh, the point of attack. On the other side, Garcivaz, the ruler of Balgar, joined the Tata legions at Balkh, commanded by Barahman, who both sallied forth to oppose the Persian host, and after a conflict of three days were defeated and obliged to abandon the fort. When the accounts of this calamity reached Afrasiab, he was seized with the utmost terror, which was increased by a dreadful dream. He thought he was in a forest, abounding with serpents, and that the air was darkened by the appearance of countless eagles. The ground was parched up with heat, and a whirlwind hurled down his tent and overthrew his banners. On every side flowed a river of blood, and the whole of his army had been defeated and butchered in his sight. He was afterwards taken prisoner, and ignominiously conducted to Cavus, in whose company he beheld a gallant youth, not more than fourteen years of age, who, the moment he saw him, plunged a dagger in his loins, and with the scream of agony produced by the wound, he awoke. Garcivaz had in the meantime returned with the remnant of his force, and being informed of these particulars, endeavoured to console Afrasiab by assuring him that the true interpretation of dreams was the reverse of appearances. But Afrasiab was not to be consoled in this manner. He referred to his astrologers, who, however, hesitated, and were unwilling to afford an explanation of the mysterious vision. At length, one of them, upon the solicited promise that the king would not punish him for divulging the truth, discussed the nature of the warning implied in what had been witnessed. And now I throw aside the veil, which hides the darkly shadowed tale. Led by a prince of prosperous star, the Persian legions speed to war, and in his horoscope we scan the lordly victor of Turan. If thou shouldst to the conflict rush, opposed to conquering Siavash, thy Turkish cohorts will be slain, and all thy saving efforts vain. For if he, in the threatened strife, should haply chance to lose his life, thy country's fate will be the same, stripped of its throne and diadem. Afrasiab was satisfied with this interpretation and felt the prudence of avoiding a war so pregnant with evil consequences to himself and his kingdom. 
He therefore deputed Garcivas to the headquarters of Siavash, with splendid presents, consisting of horses richly caparisoned, armor, swords, and other costly articles, and a written dispatch, proposing a termination to hostilities. In the meantime, Siavash was anxious to pursue the enemy across the Jehun, but was dissuaded by his friends. When Garcivas arrived on his embassy, he was received with distinction, and the object of his mission being understood, a secret council was held upon what answer should be given. It was then deemed proper to demand, first, one hundred distinguished heroes as hostages, and secondly, the restoration of all the provinces which the Turanians had taken from Iran. Garcivas sent immediately to Afrasia to inform him of the conditions required, and without the least delay they were approved. A hundred warriors were soon on their way, and Bukhara, and Samargand, and Han, and the Punjab were faithfully delivered over to Siavash. Afrasiab himself retired toward Gang Dersh, saying, I have had a terrible dream, and I will surrender whatever may be required from me, rather than go to war. The negotiations being concluded, Siavash sent a letter to his father by the hands of Rostam. Rumor, however, had already told Kavus of Afrasiab's dream, and the terror he had been thrown into in consequence. The astrologers in his service, having prognosticated from it the certain ruin of the Turanian king, the object of Rostam's mission was directly contrary to the wishes of Kavus. But Rostam contended that the policy was good, and the terms were good, and he thereby incurred his majesty's displeasure. On this account, Kavus appointed Tus, the leader of the Persian army, and commanded him to march against Afrasiab, ordering Siavash at the same time to return, and bring with him his hundred hostages. At this command, Siavash was grievously offended, and consulted with his chieftains, Bahram and Zinjan and Shahvaran, on the fittest course to be pursued, saying, I have pledged my word to the fulfilment of the terms, and what will the world say if I do not keep my faith? The chiefs tried to quiet his mind, and recommended him to write again to Kavus, expressing his readiness to renew the war and return the hundred hostages. But Siavash was in a different humour, and thought as Tus had been actually appointed to the command of the Persian army, it would be most advisable for him to abandon his country and join Afrasiab. The chiefs, upon hearing this singular resolution, unanimously attempted to dissuade him from pursuing so wild a course as throwing himself into the power of his enemy. But he was deaf to their entreaties, and in the stubbornness of his spirit wrote to Afrasiab, informing him that Kavus had refused to ratify the treaty of peace, that he was compelled to return the hostages, and even himself to seek protection in Turan from the resentment of his father, the warrior Tus, having been already entrusted with the charge of the army. This unexpected intelligence excited considerable surprise in the mind of Afrasiab, but he had no hesitation in selecting the course to be followed. The ambassadors, Zinjan and Shahvaran, were soon furnished with a reply, which was to this effect. I settled the terms of peace with thee, not with thy father. With him I have nothing to do. 
If thy choice be retirement and tranquillity, thou shalt have a peaceful and independent province allotted to thee. But if war be thy object, I will furnish thee with a large army. Thy father is old and infirm, and with the aid of Rostam, Persia will be an easy conquest. Having thus obtained the promised favour and support of Afrasiab, Siavash gave in charge to Bahram, the city of Balkh, the army and treasure, in order that they might be delivered over to Tus on his arrival, and taking with him three hundred chosen horsemen, passed the Jehun, in progress to the court of Afrasiab. On taking this decisive step, he again wrote to Kavus, saying, From my youth upward I have suffered wrong. At first Sudabe, false and treacherous, sought to destroy my happiness and fame, and thou hadst nearly sacrificed my life to glut her vengeance. The astrologers were all unheeded, who pronounced me innocent, and I was doomed to brave devouring fire to testify that I was free from guilt. But God was my deliverer. Victory now has marked my progress. Balk and all its spoils are mine, and so reduced the enemy, that I have gained a hundred hostages to guarantee the peace which I have made, and what my recompense, a father's anger which takes me from my glory. Thus deprived of thy affection, whither can I fly? Be it to friend or foe, the will of fate must be my only guide, condemned by thee. The reception of Siavash by Afrasiab was warm and flattering. From the gates of the city to the palace, gold and incense were scattered over his head in the customary manner, and exclamations of welcome uttered on every side. Thy presence gives joy to the land, which awaits thy command. It is thine, it is thine. All the chiefs of the state have assembled to meet thee. All the flowers of the land are in blossom to greet thee. The youth was placed on a golden throne next to Afrasiab, and a magnificent banquet prepared in honour of the stranger, and music and the songs of beautiful women enlivened the festive scene. They chanted the praises of Siavash, distinguished, as they said, among men for three things. First, for being of the line of Kegobad, secondly, for his faith and honour, and thirdly, for the wonderful beauty of his person which had gained universal love and admiration. The favourable sentiments which characterised the first introduction of Siavash to Afrasiab continued to prevail, and indeed the king of Turan seemed to regard him with increased attachment and friendship. As the time passed away, and showed him all the respect and honour to which his royal birth would have entitled him in his own country. After the lapse of a year, Piran Visa, one of Ephrasiab's generals said to him, Young prince, thou art now high in the favour of the king and at a great distance from Persia, and thy father is old. Would it not therefore be better for thee to marry and take up thy residence among us for life? The suggestion was a rational one, and Siavash readily expressed his acquiescence. Accordingly, the lovely Golshar, who was also named Jarir, Having been introduced to him, he was delighted with her person, and both consenting to a union, the marriage ceremony was immediately performed. And many a warm, delicious kiss, 
told how he loved the wedded bliss. Sometime after this union, Piran suggested another alliance for the purpose of strengthening his political interest in power, and this was with Farangis, the daughter of Afrasiab. But Siavash was so devoted to Golshar that he first consulted with her on the subject, although the hospitality and affection of the king constituted such strong claims on his gratitude that refusal was impossible. Golshar, however, was a heroine, and willingly sacrificed her own feelings for the good of Siavash, saying she would rather condescend to be the very handmaid of Farangis than that the happiness and prosperity of her lord should be compromised. The second marriage accordingly took place, and Afrasiab was so pleased with the match that he bestowed on the bride and her husband the sovereignty of Khotan, together with countless treasure in gold and a great number of horses, camels, and elephants. In a short time, they proceeded to the seat of the new government. Meanwhile, Kavus suffered the keenest distress and sorrow when he heard of the flight of Siavash into Turan, and Rostam felt such strong indignation at the conduct of the king that he abruptly quitted the court without permission and retired to Sistan. Kavus thus found himself in an embarrassed condition, and deemed it prudent to recall both Tus and the army from Balkh, and relinquish further hostile measures against Afrasiab. The first thing that Siavash undertook after his arrival at Khatan was to order the selection of a beautiful site for his residence, and Piran devoted his services to fulfil that object, exploring all the provinces, hills, and dales on every side. At last he discovered a beautiful spot, at the distance of about a month's journey, which combined all the qualities and advantages required by the anxious prince. It was situated on a mountain, and surrounded by scenery of exquisite richness and variety. The trees were fresh and green, birds warbled on every spray, transparent rivulets murmured through the meadows, the air was neither oppressively hot in summer nor cold in winter, so that the temperature and the attractive objects which presented themselves at every glance seemed to realize the imagined charms and fascinations of paradise. The inhabitants enjoyed perpetual health, and every breeze was laden with music and perfume. So lovely a place could not fail to yield pleasure to Siavash, who immediately set about building a palace there, and garden temples, in which he had pictures painted of the most remarkable persons of his time, and also the portraits of ancient kings, the walls were decorated with the likenesses of Kegobad, Kekavus, Pashang, Afrasiab, and Sam, and Zal, and Rostam, and other champions of Persia and Turan. When completed, it was a gorgeous retreat, and the sight of it sufficient to give youthful vigour to the withered faculties of age. And yet Siavash was not happy. Tears started into his eyes, and sorrow weighed upon his heart whenever he thought upon his own estrangement from home. It happened that the lovely Golshar, who had been left in the house of her father, was delivered of a son in due time, and he was named Forud. Afrasiab, on being informed of the proceedings of Siavash, and of the heart-expanding residence he had chosen, 
was highly gratified, and to show his affectionate regard, dispatched to him with the intelligence of the birth of a son, presents of great value and variety, Garcilas, the brother of Afrasiab, and who had from the first looked upon Siavash with a jealous and malignant eye, being afraid of his interfering with his own prospects in Turan, was the person sent on this occasion. But he hid his secret doubts under the veil of outward praise and approbation. Siavash was pleased with the intelligence and the presence, but failed to pay the customary respect to Garcivaz on his arrival, and in consequence the lurking indignation and hatred formerly felt by the latter were considerably augmented. The attention of Siavash respecting his army and the concerns of the state was unremitting, and noted by the visitor with a jealous and scrutinizing eye, so that Garcivaz, on his return to the court of Afrasiab, artfully talked much of the pomp and splendor of the prince, and added, Siavash is far from being the amiable character thou hast supposed. He is artful and ambitious, and he has collected an immense army. He is in fact dissatisfied. As a proof of his haughtiness, he paid me but little attention, and doubtless very heavy calamity will soon fall befall Turan, should he break out, as I apprehend he will, into open rebellion. For he is proud and thou hast yet to learn the temper of thy daughter Ferengis, now bound to him in duty and affection. Their purpose is the same, to overthrow the kingdom of Turan and thy dominion, to merge the glory of this happy realm into the Persian Empire. But plausible and persuasive as were the observations and positive declarations of Garcivaz, Afrasiab would not believe the imputed ingratitude and hostility of Siavash. He has sought my protection, said he. He has thrown himself upon my generosity, and I cannot think him treacherous. But if he has meditated anything unmerited by me, and unworthy of himself, it will be better to send him back to Keikavus, his father. The artful Garcilas, however, was not to be diverted from his object. He said that Siavash had become personally acquainted with Turan, its position, its weakness, its strength and resources, and aided by Rostam, would soon be able to overrun the country if he was suffered to return, and therefore he recommended Afrasiab to bring him from Khotan by some artifice and secure him. In conformity with this suggestion, Garcivaz was again deputed to the young prince, and a letter of a friendly nature written for the purpose of blinding him to the real intentions of his father-in-law. The letter was no sooner read than Siavash expressed his desire to comply with the request contained in it, saying that Afrasiab had been a father to him, and that he would lose no time in fulfilling in all respects the wishes he had received. This compliance and promptitude, however, was not in harmony with the sinister views of Garcivaz, for he foresaw that the very fact of answering the call immediately would show that some misrepresentation had been practiced, and consequently it was his business now to promote procrastination, and an appearance of evasive delay. 
He therefore said to him privately that it would be advisable for him to wait a little, and not manifest such implicit obedience to the will of Avrasiab. But Siavesh replied that both his duty and affection urged him to a ready compliance. Then Gausivers pressed him more warmly, and represented how inconsistent, how unworthy of his illustrious lineage it would be to betray so meek a spirit, especially as he had a considerable army at his command, and could vindicate his dignity and his rights. And he addressed to him these specious arguments, so incessantly and with such earnestness, that the deluded prince was at last induced to put off his departure, on account of his wife Ferengis pretending that she was ill, and saying that the moment she was better, he would return to Turan. This was quite enough for treachery to work upon, and as soon as the dispatch was sealed, Gausivaz conveyed it with the utmost expedition to Afrasiab. Appearances, at least, were thus made strong against Siavash, and the tyrant of Turan, now easily convinced of his falsehood, and feeling in consequence his former enmity renewed, forthwith assembled an army to punish his refractory son-in-law. Gausivaz was appointed the leader of that army, which was put in motion without delay against the unoffending youth. The news of Afrasiab's warlike preparations satisfied the mind of Siavash that Gersivaz had given him good advice, and that he had been a faithful monitor, for immediate compliance, he now concluded, would have been his utter ruin. When he communicated this unwelcome intelligence to Farangis, she was thrown into the greatest alarm and agitation, but ever fruitful in expedients, suggested the course that it seemed necessary he should instantly adopt, which was to fly by a circuitous route back to Iran. To this he expressed no dissent, provided she would accompany him. But she said it was impossible to do so on account of the condition she was in. Leave me, she added, and save thy own life. He therefore called together his three hundred Iranians, and requesting Farangis, if she happened to be delivered of a son, to call him Kehosro, set off on his journey. I go, surrounded by my enemies. The hand of merciless Afrasiab lifted against me. It was not the fortune of Siavash, however, to escape so easily as had been anticipated by Farangis. Garcivaz was soon at his heels, and in the battle that ensued all the Iranians were killed, and also the horse upon which the unfortunate prince rode, so that on foot he could make but little progress. In the meantime, Afrasiab came up, and surrounding him, wanted to shoot him with an arrow, but he was restrained from the violent act by the intercession of his people, who recommended his being taken alive, and only kept in prison. Accordingly, he was again attacked and secured, but still Afrasiab wished to put him to death. But Pilsam, one of his warriors, and the brother of Piran, induced him to relinquish that diabolical intention, and to convey him back to his own palace. Siavash was then ignominiously fettered and conducted to the royal residence, which he had himself erected and ornamented with such richness and magnificence. The sight of the city and its splendid buildings filled everyone with wonder and admiration. Upon the arrival of Afrasiab, Farangis hastened to him, 
in a state of the deepest distress, and implored his clemency and compassion in favour of Siavesh. Oh, father, he is not to blame. Still pure and spotless is his name, faithful and generous still to me, and never, never false to thee. This hate to Garcivas he owes, the worst, the bitterest of his foes. Did he not thy protection seek, and wilt thou overpower the weak? Spill royal blood thou shouldst bless, in cruel sport and wantonness, and earn the curses of mankind, living in this precarious state, and dead the torments of the mind, which hell inflicts upon the great, who revel in a murderous curse, and rule by cruelty and force. It scarce becomes me now to tell what the accursed Zahak befell, or what the punishment which hurled Salm and Tur from out the world. And is not Kavus living now, with rightful vengeance on his brow, and Rostam, who alone can make thy kingdom to its centre quake, Gutars, Zurara, and Feribors, and Tus, and Gorgin, and Faramars, and others too of fearless might, to challenge thee to mortal fight? Oh, from this peril turn away, cease not in gloom so bright a day, some heed to thy poor daughter give, and let thy guiltless captive live. The effect of this appeal, solemnly and urgently delivered, was only transitory. Aphrasiab felt a little compunction at the moment, but soon resumed his ferocious spirit, and to ensure, without interruption, the accomplishment of his purpose, confined Farangis in one of the remotest parts of the palace. And thus, to Garcivaz the unfeeling spoke, Off with his head, down with the enemy, but take especial notice that his blood stains not the earth, lest it should cry aloud for vengeance on us. Take good care of that! Garcivaz, who was but too ready an instrument, immediately directed Garvizare, a kinsman of Avrasiab, who had been also one of the most zealous in promoting the ruin of the Persian prince to inflict the deadly blow, and Siavash, whilst under the grasp of the executioner, had but time to put up a prayer to heaven, in which he hoped that a son might be born to him to vindicate his good name, and be revenged on his murderer. The executioner then seized him by the hair, and throwing him on the ground, severed the head from the body. A golden vessel was ready to receive the blood, as commanded by Aphrasiab, but a few drops happened to be spilt on the soil, and upon that spot a tree grew up, which was afterwards called Siavash, and believed to possess many wonderful virtues. The blood was carefully conveyed to Aphrasiab, the head fixed on the point of a javelin, and the body was buried with respect and affection by his friend Pilsam, who had witnessed the melancholy catastrophe. It is also related that a tremendous tempest occurred at the time this amiable prince was murdered, and that a total darkness covered the face of the earth, so that the people could not distinguish each other's faces. Then was the name of Aphrasiab truly execrated and abhorred for the cruel act he had committed, and all the inhabitants of Khotan long cherished the memory of Siavash. Ferengis was frantic with grief when she was told of the sad fate of her husband, 
and all her household uttered the loudest lamentations. Pilsam gave the intelligence to Piran, and the proverb was then remembered, It is better to be in hell than under the rule of Afrasiab. When the deep sorrow of Ferengis reached the ears of her father, he determined on a summary procedure, and ordered Gersivas to have her privately made away with, so that there might be no issue of her marriage with Siavash. Piran, with horror, heard this stern command, and hastened to the king, and thus addressed him. What? Wouldst thou hurl thy vengeance on a woman, that woman too thy daughter? Is it wise or natural thus to sport with human life? Already hast thou taken from her arms her unoffending husband? That was cruel. But thus to shed an innocent woman's blood, and kill her unborn infant? That would be too dreadful to imagine. Is she not thy own fair daughter, given in happier time to him who won thy favour and affection? Think but of that, and from thy heart root out this demon wish, which leads thee to a crime mocking concealment, vain were the endeavour to keep the murder secret and when known the world's opprobrium would pursue thy name. And after death, what would thy portion be? No more of this. Honour me with the charge, and I will keep her with a father's care in my own mansion. Then Afrasia readily answered, Take her to thy home, but when the child is born, let it be brought promptly to me. My will must be obeyed. Piran rejoiced at his success, and, assenting to the command of Afrasiab, took Farangis with him to Khotan, where in due time a child was born, and being a son, was named Kei Khosro. As soon as he was born, Piran took measures to prevent his being carried off to Afrasiab, and committed him to the care of some peasants on the mountain Gala. On the same night, Afrasiab had a dream, in which he received intimation of the birth of Kei Khosro, and upon this intimation he sent for Piran to know why his commands had not been complied with. Piran replied that he had cast away the child in the wilderness. And why was he not sent to me? inquired the despot. Because, said Piran, I considered thy own future happiness. Thou hast unjustly killed the father, and God forbid that thou shouldst also kill the son. Afrasiab was abashed, and it is said that ever after the atrocious murder of Siavash, he had been tormented with the most terrible and harrowing dreams. Gazivaz now became hateful to his sight, and he began at last deeply to repent of his violence and inhumanity. Kehosro grew up under the fostering protection of the peasants, and showed early marks of surprising talent and activity. He excelled in manly exercises, and hunting ferocious animals was his peculiar delight. Instructors had been provided to initiate him in all the arts and pursuits cultivated by the warriors of those days, and even in his twelfth year accounts were forwarded to Piran of several wonderful feats which he had performed. Then smiled the good old man, and joyful said, 
Tis ever thus. The youth of royal blood will not disgrace his lineage, but betray by his superior mien and gallant deeds from whence he sprung. Tis by the luscious fruit we know the tree, and glory in its ripeness. Piran could not resist paying a visit to the youth in his mountainous retreat, and, happy to find him, beyond all expectation, distinguished for the elegance of his external appearance and the superior qualities of his mind, related to him the circumstances under which he had been exposed and the rank and misfortunes of his father. An artifice then occurred to him which promised to be of ultimate advantage. He afterwards told Afrasiab that the offspring of Ferengis, thrown by him into the wilderness to perish, had been found by a peasant and brought up, but that he understood the boy was little better than an idiot. Afrasiab, upon this information, desired that he might be sent for, and in the meantime Piran took especial care to instruct Kehosro how she should act, which was to seem in all respects insane, and he accordingly appeared before the king in the dress of a prince with a golden crown on his head, and the royal girdle round his loins. Kehosro proceeded on horseback to the court of Afrasiab, and having performed the usual salutations, was suitably received, though with strong feelings of shame and remorse on the part of the tyrant. Afrasiab put several questions to him, which were answered in a wild and incoherent manner, entirely at variance with the subject proposed. The king could not help smiling, and supposing him to be totally deranged, allowed him to be sent with presents to his mother, for no harm, he thought, could possibly be apprehended from one so forlorn in mind. Piran triumphed in the success of his scheme, and lost no time in taking Kehosro to his mother. All the people of Khotan poured blessings on the head of the youth, and imprecations on the merciless spirit of Afrasiab. The city, built by Siavesh, had been razed to the ground by the exterminating fury of his enemies, and wild animals and reptiles occupied the place on which it stood. The mother and son visited the spot where Siavesh was barbarously killed, and the tree, which grew up from the soil enriched by his blood, was found verdant and flourishing, and continued to possess in perfection its marvellous virtues. The tale of Siavesh is told, and now the pages bright unfold. Rostam's revenge, Sudabe's fate, Afrasiab's degraded state, and that terrific curse and ban which fell at last upon Turan. End of the Story of Siavesh, Part 1 by Fedosi.